my name is Ben O. I also go by Benzo. A lot of different names, same guy. I just want to make sure real quick because I was tinkering with stuff earlier. Can you guys hear me okay? Everything sound okay? Yeah. I got head nods. I love it. All right. Uh, Ten-minute share. So it's the uh, uh, abridged version, abridged version. Uh, I'm going to just leave a bunch of stuff out so I don't have to talk super fast. I I don't sound like an auctioneer. How about that? Uh, Cool. So first off, uh, thank you guys for your service and keeping this meeting going. Uh, We're like super deep into this Zoom transition that uh, pandemic inspired online meetings. And I've been amazed by uh, what's happened here. Like this has been really cool. There's been a lot of opportunities for me to make new friends. Uh, 10 years ago, I used to make fun of people who had computer online friends. And now that's what I do. So this has been super cool. Uh, What's at my fingertips is pretty much any moment of any day I can tap in and get some experience and strength and hope. And uh, what an amazing thing. Now, this is very different. And uh, one of the things I've had to, to continually do through my sobriety and my time here is be willing to change, like go through these, these moments where uh, everything seems to be different and I don't know what the rules are anymore. So thank you guys for making this transition with me and holding this place. What a special thing. All right, let's get to it. So uh, I started drinking pretty early. Like we, we are here because of alcohol right? (laughs) So uh, what that looked like in my case was uh, this beautiful magic day. Uh, So basically, you know, uh, hanging out in my backyard, I had an older sister and uh, they did, they did uh, all kinds of party favors. And I was a 12 year old guy. And uh, I have children now, one of them is about to walk through Frank through the frame. There he is. Hello. Uh, yeah, so I had, uh, you know, uh, things like normal kids have with, with big sisters, like you think they're that her friends are hot, and you want to hang out and you want to be one of the cool kids and all that stuff. So uh, one magic day, they let me kind of tag along and, and do what they did, right. And I remember drinking. And uh, I didn't like the taste, but like who does in the beginning. And uh, I got that warm sensation in my belly. And, uh, you know, my face started feeling a little flush. And I'm smiling and I'm talking to the pretty girls and everything's like just great, you know, like feeling less than or feeling like the younger annoying brother just kind of disappeared. They probably thought it was like the the dumbest thing ever. Like, look at this kid. Ha ha. Like some kind of joke. But what I also remember is I walked into the house and uh, we had an, an upholstery couch. And it was like that perfect time of the day where the light's golden and it's coming through this little crack in the window. And when I sat on the couch, a little puff of dust came up in the air. And I remember it seemed like time stopped, you know, like all of my uh, all of my feelings like turned into joy. And it was just this beautiful moment of like floating dust particles with this golden beam of light through the window and everything was just perfect. Right. So I didn't think about the stuff like, uh, you know, like uh, the violence in the home or like how poorly I wasn't doing in school or just the little kid feelings that you have. Right. It all disappeared and it was perfect. You know, uh, without getting too much into my history, I grew up kind of in turmoil. You know, like the house wasn't a safe place. There was a lot of weird stuff going on. Uh, there was there was some kind of abusive things. I had it kind of worse than some and not as bad as others. But I didn't have really good coping mechanisms until I found, uh, you know, drinking and all those other party favors. So I went from having like a 
you know, uh, chaos in between my ears to a perfect moment. So I fell in love, you know? So uh, it just became what I did really quick. You know, and at that age, you know, 12, 13, 14, I was experimenting with a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, what, what happened in that moment was like arrested development, you know. So years passed by and I'm still that kid with no coping mechanisms. And, uh, you know, it's just some strange things. Like I never really learned emotional regulation, you know. So I'd get mad and I'd fly off the handle and I'd do stupid stuff. And I was constantly just kind of that guy, you know. So what's uh, acceptable for a prepubescent 12-year-old child, like once your body changes into a man, like you're a threat, you know? And uh, it's like when you let a puppy chew on your fingers, it's cute and they turn into a big dog and it hurts. And uh, that's just kind of how I was. I, I, I was an outside dog, <laughs> you know? Started from making these analogies. We just got a little French bulldog puppy. So I'm just like puppy obsessed right now. But in any event, yeah, so time goes on and I start doing stuff like getting arrested, like going to grown up jail. You know, CYA was part of that story. I don't have a lot of time to get into all the details, but most of the most of the times I had police interaction or issues or convictions or charges or any of this stuff. It's because I was drunk and I was making poor decisions. So all of this chaos, I, I want to kind of break this down for a moment because it's important because these poor decisions and these chaos aren't what make me alcoholic. And uh, what do you mean by that, Ben? Yeah, uh, uh, going to jail is not, uh, it might be an indicator that you may have a problem, but it doesn't uh, determine whether or not you're alcoholic. So if, after some time of, of uh, going through this stuff, the state of California mandated that I go move into what they called at the time was a halfway house. Uh, what had happened behind the scenes is this, this, uh, this young guy was a good kid. He was nothing like me. He had a heroin problem. He overdosed and died. And uh, his parents were kind of sociolites and uh, started trying to push for some uh, political action to do some social change. And, uh, you know, at the time, and I got arrested this last time in the, in the right place at the right time. So they had this experiment that they were trying to do, which was, uh, you know, early, early forms of drug court or Prop 36 or uh, all the programs that you hear about. So they take guys like me and they do your sentence in a halfway house or sober living environment or whatever the popular term is nowadays. And they'd basically have you do your time there and keep their fingers crossed that you'd stay out of trouble. But what I found is most guys didn't stay out of trouble and this thing didn't work. But for some reason with me, uh, I, uh, and I didn't feel like it at the time, but, but uh, all of the messages that I needed to hear were put in my path and they weren't all pretty. You know, sometimes it was because somebody would go out and relapse and within a period of days, they'd get like killed or overdose and die. Or I had a bunch of people who were on the other side of like the stories that I thought I was pursuing and they'd show me things like, you know, the life and the track that you're on just doesn't work out. Um, and there's a lot to that. There's a lot to that. So what you end up with is you end up with, uh, you know, a, a young guy who starts Within AA, learning some coping mechanisms and how to deal with life. And I learned about what alcoholism was. And this is important, right? You know, it's not if you robbed banks or beat up your mom or like went to jail more times than I did or less. Like none of that stuff matters. So what alcoholism is, turns out once I put alcohol into my body, my body acts differently, right? Than most people do. So girls always told me I'm not like other boys, you know, <laughs> but what does that mean? It means I developed this phenomenon of craving, which I can tell you guys in my instance feels like a sense of irritation. You know, 
It turns from this wonderful elation feeling and everything's right in the world followed shortly behind it by like, what the hell are you looking at? What'd you say to me? Why are you looking at my girl? You know, that's what it turns into. So I drink more to kind of stuff that back down, put the smile back on my face. So one turns into two, two, two turns into 12 to a 24 pack to a blackout to handcuffs. I do not have an off switch. So what, what uh, the disease of alcoholism also contains is this mag, thank you for the two minute warning here, is this uh, wonderful magnifying mind, right? And this uh, sense of self-obsession and the disease lives in between my ears. So once I uh, pass through, through the, uh, the tiny hole about this big that I gotta squeeze through to get some sobriety, I'm left with my thinking and the steps come into play. You know, and what I've learned from the steps is a design for living that helps me manage uh, somewhat with the help of a power greater than myself, this crazy thing that is my life, you know? And um, what, it, what it is for me is it's not an opportunity to stop being so damn resentful at the world, point the finger toward myself and do some internal work. And what that looks like is it looks like me facing and being rid of myself for the first time in my life. And it's a hard thing to do. What it also allows me to do is clear up the wreckage of the past, look the world in the eye for the first time and find freedom, you know, find freedom from the bondage of self. And I realize I'm using some kind of convoluted terms, but it's a lot to squeeze in in a short period of time here. You know, an hour is not long enough. So I want to tell you guys really quickly before I wrap that I was a 19 year old kid when I came in. And uh, with the help of AA, I got to grow up into, uh, you know, the man I am now, which is very quirky, sometimes uh, abrasive, you know, sometimes just odd and don't fit in in general, but I'm happy today. My life is full of love and joy. All of the things I thought I was ineligible for in life, I've gotten to do. Like today, I'm a, I'm a productive member of society and I've done well, you know. Like all of the relationships that I burned out there in the world, like they haven't all come back because they weren't all healthy, you know? But what I have today is I have the respect of my peers. I have the love of my family. You know, I have a family and it's not just the biological, you know? It's the wonderful people I've got to meet in here. You know, the, the friendships that have lasted, you know? And uh, I think that's it for my time tonight. But I do want to thank you guys for letting me come out here and open my yap. And that's it out of me. Hi, everybody. My name is Knox. I'm an alcoholic. And it's great to be here tonight. Uh, John called me up earlier today and asked if I could do it. And I said, sure. It's been, I, uh, it's been a long time since I did a speaker meeting. Um, I, you know, uh, so. Uh, and. Uh, as, as as Ben said, these these Zoom meetings have been uh, well, they've been wonderful. I mean, they're not like a real meeting, but they they've been great for a couple of years for us. So, so uh, anyway, um, I uh, I grew up in Berkeley. Um, I graduated from Berkeley High School in 1968. Now, in certain certain circles, that qualifies as a drunkalog right there. So, uh, I I grew up in a in an alcoholic family. I, I usually say, my name is Knox Bronson and I'm telling you my last name because if you're ever in a town and you need to work with an alcoholic and you can't get to a meeting, open up the phone book and call a Bronson, you'll be talking to one. But um, 
we don't, I don't think we have phone books anymore, right? I mean, they're gone. Um, anyway, yeah, I come from, you know, both sides of the family, alcoholism, like so many of us. My dad was a, a quite successful uh, writer and uh, we had a, an exciting life. Um, but it was also crazy. On said it looked like the American dream, and uh, uh, but but it was just an alcoholic. Every other crazy alcoholic family is, you know. Um, I grew up, uh, came of age in the '60s. My first years of of using and drinking were was was you know, smoking pot and doing acid and stuff like that. We did not want to be drunks like our parents. We would only drink when we could not get anything else. And we'd go get a, we used to go get a bottle of mountain red wine, red mountain wine and for $1.50. And I would drink it and I did, and the craving would, would kick in immediately. And I drink a whole bunch and pass out. I did not know how to drink. Um, and my parents finally sent me to um, Hawaii to get away from the bad influence of, of, of Berkeley because uh, it was a crazy time. We had the riots. Uh, we had, uh, you know, bad speed was starting to come into the town. I mean, it really wasn't that much fun anymore. And um, it was weird. It was a weird time. It was scary. And uh, I, uh, so they sent me to live with, with uh, my uncle and aunt and his family. Um, and I remember my uncles, I was like 18 or 19 at the time, sitting me down and he said, Knox, your father and I are practice are pra uh, functional alcoholics. And I thought that sounds pretty good, you know? <laughs> and I, you know, and he, he taught me how to drink. Uh, we'd sit out on the, the, patio and 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 drink drink beer mostly some wine uh and we would play music he'd play jazz and i'd play rock and roll you know he'd play bud shank i'd play led zeppelin and we'd go back and forth um and it was you know it, it, i learned how to pace i guess pace myself and enjoy enjoy it you know I made it back to the uh, mainland here within a, I don't know, a couple of years, I guess. And uh, things had changed. The, uh, the revolution was over. We had lost and the seventies had begun and so had the party. And uh, I got a job over in, in North beach, uh, uh, selling leather clothes at North Beach Leather. I'm, all of you look too young to know of Lord, North Beach Leather, but it was like the the serious. I mean, you know, the rock stars would come to North Beach Leather when they came to town. You know, stuff like that. And we we're up we're in North Beach, and you know, we had a Coke dealer who would come in and he'd front us Coke all week and sh you know show up on payday and I, I but I do remember the first time I went around the the corner I took a break and I went around the corner onto Grand Street and into some old Italian saloon and had a shot of whiskey, you know, smoking a 
camel. And I thought this, this was it. This was the life I, I wanted, you know, I, you know, I, I just, and uh, the guy I worked with, uh, he, he made it to AA way before me, but he taught me how to drink a Boilermaker, <laughs> you know, I mean, but we were, and so at that point we're off and running. Um, I, you know, my dad uh, got me a job at the newspaper at the examiner. He didn't want me selling leather clothes or whatever, but anyway, and now that, that was like heaven because um, basically the city editor had a, had a uh, phone with a million buttons on it. And they're like the chief of police, the fire chief, the mayor's office, all this stuff. The very last button on the phone was staff. And it and it rang the bar down at the corner a block away. And that's where everybody spent, well, all the the drinkers spent most of their time. And then it was still, it was still that era that was, you know, that you know, the archetypical hard drinking newspaper man or woman they they were real they're fascinating people i was a like a copy boy a wire attendant and stuff like that most of them knew my dad and i mean i, I basically lived there for the 70s um um you know i i, I also i like to say that you know the foundation of the 70s for me was clockwork orange the movie uh the uh fear and loathing in las vegas the book which was the publication date was my 21st birthday 50 years ago and um then the rise and fall of ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars now you know there there's a a common element to those besides just weirdness but drugs and booze and debauchery and uh you know, I just, you know, I just lived the San Francisco life for the 70s and um, man out at clubs every night, you know, doing as much cocaine as I could get my hands on. Uh, I flirted with heroin briefly, and I, but I stopped doing it because I figured out that if I got strung out, it would screw up my drinking. And, uh, you know, first things first, right? Um, but, um, so I stopped doing it, but that was crazy time. And it was, I don't know. I don't explain it. I mean, I wish I could remember more of it. Um, but I, I remember even early on, even, yeah, right. Even in my early twenties, sitting around with my friends drinking, not the newspaper guys, but my age group friends and going, is this what we're going to do? Is this all, is, is this what? we're going to end up doing just sitting in the bar and bullshitting. I mean, it, I knew something wasn't quite right, but I couldn't stop. I didn't see it as a problem because in my dad's generation, they all drank every one of them. And they were, most of them did were, had done fine. It was a different time, different era. And uh, so I just always thought I needed to get it together you know, so I could, you know, but I, I didn't. Near the end of my um, 20s, I, I met a woman in a bar, of course, uh, 
up in North Beach and I, I was living in North Beach by this time and uh, I was working for a printing company. I wasn't at the paper anymore. And uh, we, we hit it off. Uh, she liked me. She was the first one that didn't say anything about my drinking. I mean, all, <laughs> all the others at some point would go, don't you think you might drink a little too much? I go, no, <laughs> see you later, you know. Um, and uh, we had a two-year courtship, if you want to call it that. I don't know. It was basically, we're just at a North Beach. Ever get off work and work our way from bar to bar and maybe go to a restaurant or a nightclub or something. And then she got pregnant and uh, we had a, a son uh, just a little over 40 years ago. Um, he's doing great today. Um, and we moved back to the East Bay and, um, and we had a second son uh, about year and a half after that. And uh, I was working, I was still drinking. Um, I was still fighting it. I was still trying to get it under control. Uh, I, I'd sit in the bar and talk about all the shit I was gonna do someday. And I would talk about how great my family was and I could not get off uh, I couldn't get off the bar stool and go home to them. I would eventually get off the bar stool and go home to them. Uh, I, I, I start drinking in the morning on, on my way to work. I'd stop in at this bar in second street and uh, have a couple of coffee brandies. I'd have a few shots of brandy and a couple of beers at lunch. I'd have some more after work. And then I'd get home to my wife and sons and I would cook dinner as pen penance. And, uh, one thing I was really good at was cooking in a blackout. I actually was quite good. And uh, people, you know, we, we, we entertained a lot too. We had a lot of dinner parties because it was a way to see our friends and not have to, you know, deal with the babysitter and all that stuff. So how'd you make that? Well, I don't know, but anyway, it's good. But so I just, you know, it was, I was caught in the, in the whole thing and you know, I'd quit doing the, the, uh, you know, I mean, pretty much the, the drugs were gone. You know, I was I was a working man and supporting my family. But I mean, I, I just I and I just couldn't. So, and my wife got, you know, you know, she just got more and more. Frustrated. Um, she loved me, but. I mean, she, she, I figured out after a few years sober, she was an alcohol, one of us as well, but, um, and, and she's still drinking, but she was very controlled and very good at keeping it together. I was never like that. I was just, you know, uh, you know, out, out the shoot and running. So, um, anyway, uh, she finally, uh, kicked me out. I, uh, I started going to meetings. Um, and uh, my and I stopped drinking and I had a new job. And my boss had been to AA, he didn't drink anymore. And my life started to get better and it got better rapidly, actually. And 
but I quit going to meetings after about two months. So I, um, I was working very hard, long hours and a very stressful job. And uh, so I hadn't been to a meeting for 10 months and I, I woke up one morning and I knew it was time to drink again. And there was, uh, there, I just knew it. it. The pink cloud had worn off, whatever. It was just, you know, it was like the switch had flipped and uh, I didn't drink for a couple of months. My wife and boys went to visit her folks. I'm standing there doing some work on the house. I had some beer in the house. I still can remember it. And I remember I was standing there and I had this beer in my hand. And I thought, maybe you shouldn't drink this. Maybe you should call the fellowship. And then my next thought was, screw it. They're, they're going to just tell me to go to a meeting and not drink the beer. I mean, you know, screw that. I wanted to drink the thing. So uh, I did. And, um, you know, it tasted wonderful. And I got totally bombed that night. Didn't mean to, but it happened. I had no tolerance for alcohol anymore. And I woke up the next day hungover. I said, oh, God, I can't do this. And I didn't want to be an alcoholic again. I wanted to get it under control because I didn't want to have to go to AA again. Well, anyway, you know what happened. I mean, I, you know, I'd been home for months, a year, whatever. And, you know, but it was only a matter of time before it all went to hell and she kicked me out again. And uh, uh, I, I, uh, and this happened just a little over 31 years ago. This time of year is always time for me to think about where I am and where I've been because, you know, um, like 31 years ago, I was going to meetings and and still drinking and you know and and i and i i didn't want to drink but i would go visit them and uh it would hurt so much to leave and go home to where wherever i was staying i think i was staying at my mother's at that point it's 40 years old and uh i'd have a couple of pale ales but what i yeah, I mean, it was weird. I I, uh, I I took one day before I actually quit drinking and I drove around to all the houses we'd lived in as we were growing up because we lived in a number of different places because starting out, you know, we were, we were poor. My parents were poor college students. And uh, then as their fortunes improved, we moved into better, bigger houses here and there. But I remember getting to the place where I lived in fifth grade and I remember walking out in the middle of the park near right near where we lived. And, and it like this thought was, you know, like, like, not like it was just, I don't know. I want to say it was like a lightning bolt, but it was just in my head really powerfully. And it, and it was, this was the last place you were happy. So like 30 years had passed you know, since, you know, and uh, anyway, I made it, you know, I, I, that day I, I got back to Emeryville where I was sleeping on the floor where I worked because nobody would have me. And, uh, I went to the bar and I was drinking with some people, strangers, and I could be very good in a bar. I was good at holding court 
telling jokes, making conversation. I, I liked it, but, but I, at that point of my drinking, the pain of my life was the alcohol was not cutting it. I had about 15 minutes relief and I'm sitting with these three people and I still think about them today. And all of a sudden I just blurted out. I said, I'm, my wife kicked me out of the house. I'm sleeping on the floor where I work. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to go. And I, I left the bar. I mean, I just dumped that on these poor people. <laughs> I mean, God. And I went back to, to where I worked. It was a printing company in Emeryville. And I got, I passed out on the floor under this blanket a friend of mine had given me. And I came to in the morning and, and I had my moment of clarity. And right in front of me was everything's gone. Everything you ever hoped for is gone. Everything you wanted ever to do was gone. Your family's gone. Your friends are gone. Everything is gone and it's your fault. And then my next thought was, well, I think I will just drive over to the bridge, which was five minutes away and jump off it and join my brother and father who had both died from this disease uh, some years prior. And, uh, and then I was laying there and I thought about my boys who were like seven and eight at the time. And I thought, well, don't do it today. And I, and I remember a feeling of peace kind of descending on, onto me. I, I, it was, I, it's hard to explain, but it was real. It was palpable. I made it to my first meeting again in a few days and I walked in and for the first time I could see what we have here. I couldn't see it the first time I came to AA. I don't know if I talked about, I think I'd mentioned that. Yeah. I, I came to, but, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I sat down, anybody knew any of the first 30, I raised my hand. I said, I'm Knox. I'm an alcoholic. I was here before I started drinking again. I really screwed up or, you know, whatever. And the guy said, Stick around, Knox. It's going to be okay. And I, I believed him. And that was the beginning of this journey. Now, as I mentioned, I, I, it took me 10 days from that day to actually quit drinking. And what finally happened was I went out to visit my wife and my boys at the time. And I was leaving. I pulled into the 7-Eleven where I got my beer. And, uh, and I sat there and I thought, you've been going to meetings for 10 days. Maybe it's time to quit drinking one day at a time like they do. It wasn't us yet. I still saw, you know, you guys as they. And I wasn't a part of just yet. Um, but nonetheless, I did not get the beer. I do believe now, 31 years later, that that's when I passed from the drunk world into the sober world. And uh, I've managed to stay ever since through the grace of God. Um, and that was the beginning of an adventure that, I mean, it's just the most unbelievable thing. I mean, I, I can't believe my what my life has been like since that time. I mean, I plunged into AA, I secretaried meetings, soon as I started doing service, that's when it became we, and I really felt a member and I, I have ever since I've, you know, and um, I've, I've lived in a number of different places uh, since then. I've had 
a lot of ups and downs. Uh, Bronsons uh, tend to swing for the bleachers. Uh, it's a hereditary thing. It's a genetic thing. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's been really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think of some highlights. I remember I had a car that I was having a hard time paying for, and I was about a year and a year sober, maybe. And uh, they kept bugging me. They wanted me to pay $300 for the car and $300 for the insurance every month. And I didn't have that kind of money. I was giving money to my wife. And, and I mean, I just, that was ridiculous. I wasn't, you know, and I finally, one day they kept calling me at work and, and, and uh, I finally, one day I said, I'll pay one or the other, take your pick, you know, goodbye. And I hung up and the call stopped. And after about two or three weeks, I thought, God, this really works. <laughs> you know, I, I had turned it over to my higher power. And then I was sitting there and one day I looked out in the parking lot and there was a tow truck taking my car out of the parking lot. <laughs> so, you know. It was a lesson about the third step I had to learn. But anyway, um, I remember my first very serious AA relationship. We were, I was about six or seven years sober and I saw her in a meeting. It was instantly transfixed and uh, it took me a while to, you know, kind of arrange to meet her and get her phone number and you know, we, we, we went by AA rules, you know, we had one date and, um, and then, you know, no sex. And then we moved in together on our second date, you know, so, um, and uh, that, that was wonderful. I still think fondly of her. It, it only lasted about six months, but it was great. She was a wonderful woman. We, I just didn't have the tools to make it through the, you know, when the honeymoon ends, I, I anyway. I often wonder where she is now, but um, I, man, I didn't, even, I mean, you know, I got into service and I've always almost, oh yeah, my, my, my sponsor, my first sponsor who, who John knew uh, back from El Cerrito in the early day, that was a long time ago. Um, he called me up when I was about six months sober one day and he was drunk and wanted me to be his sponsor. And as you might imagine, it, it kind of freaked me out because I did not, um, you know, he's my sponsor and he's drunk, you know, and I was six months sober. So, you know, I got off the phone. I talked to my current sponsor who I'd been talking to almost every day already anyway, because I, I knew that there were my, my official sponsor had some, issues and, and um, he really did he, he died some years later he never really put together any real sobriety again uh, unfortunately he's just one of those people you know that just couldn't make it but I remember sitting there by myself for for quite a while thinking about it and I thought you know I, I'd watched him drift away and I thought you know I can't ever drift away from AA I, I, if I do like the last time where I didn't go to meetings for 10 months, I'll convince myself some one way or another that it's okay to drink. And so you, I made a commitment to myself at that time to always have a formal commitment 
And I have pretty much ever since. I mean, there were times where it just it didn't quite work out because I, I mean, I've my circumstances for living have been bizarre at times um, for different reasons. Um, but anywhere where I was stable, I've had a commitment. And uh, because I know I do, I, this is it. I mean, this AA is the core of my life and has been as crazy as I am. And, you know, in, in many ways, I, I'm not crazy where it comes to alcohol and I never forget that it's, I'm powerless and that uh, my only defense against it is to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and try on a daily basis to stay spiritually fit so I can receive the gift of sobriety. Um, my last time I took any psychoactive drug was December 17th, 1990. I was at a Pixies concert in uh, San Francisco. Um, I smoked, my friend had some pot. I smoked some pot with him. I hadn't had a drink for a couple of days when I was in the, you know, I didn't go in the parking, when I went in the parking lot and decided not to drink. So that was what I did my last days. I didn't, I smoked pot and I'm still, I, if I had known that there was, that was my last day, I would have at least had a cognac or something. But so, um, yeah, so it's been a real adventure. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, some about 10 years ago, I finally, one of the great gifts of sobriety, I, I just got okay with being me. I didn't want to be David Bowie anymore or Hunter Thompson anymore or Keith Richards or, you know, whoever, Herb Kane, whatever. You know, I didn't, I was really happy to be Knox, you know. And uh, that's that's been a revelation, and I and that's still happened for me, still happening today. Um, uh, uh, at uh, about uh, back in two thousand and three, I, I was a, a witness to something that happened in my neighborhood. Nothing happened, but the cops had a statement from me that would convict this guy. They were just shooting off their guns. Nobody got shot or anything. They, but they wanted to put this guy away because he was a gangster. And uh, I uh, made the mistake of talking to the cops. And then I, a couple months later, I got word from the street that, you know, if I got subpoenaed, they were going to kill me and they'd burn down the building if they needed to. So I talked to my lawyer who's been in the program for 40 years and uh and I talked to an old gangster I knew who'd gotten out of the ma mafia alive and they said well you got to avoid <laughs> that subpoena so um so I left I left my home of 10 years it was the longest place I've ever lived anywhere uh, in Oakland it was at 47 it was right next door to the Maya Motel if any of you know the Maya Motel it was a crack motel and I lived there for 10 years. So I went to LA for a couple of years um, and floated around trying to put one thing together or another. And things just got worse and worse and worse. I would at times be sleeping in my car. Sometimes I'd be able to sublet a, an apartment. I floated around 
house sat. I had some very close friends down there. I mean, one of my best friends down there, uh, I'd met an AA up here and he had, he had been very successful in the music business, but he got back down to LA, quit going to meetings, you know, hopped in the limo, fuck AA. He was dead of a heroin overdose within a year or two. And I, I mean, I was, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, AA is fantastic. I was down there. I didn't know anybody. I'd go to a meeting or two or three a day when all this this stuff was happening and talk about what's going on. And people were there for me. And that's, I mean, that's what we do for each other wherever we are. And that's one thing I've known. Ulti- what finally happened was um, I was, I had it down. I ran out of places to live. So I was sleeping in my car at third in Vermont and I would, I would, I had this place where this little part-time job for a few hours in the afternoon, I'd go there, then I'd go somewhere and write, or I I was working on a book and uh, and then I'd go to the gym and I'd do my, I'd change my clothes and uh, shower. I'd do my singing um, exercises in the, in this room and And then I'd go to this coffee place and stayed up until 2 a.m. And then they then I'd go to drive down to Vermont and third and sleep in my car at the Vaughn's parking lot. And I one night the cops took my car away. And uh, you know, and uh, I'm I'm walking through Koreatown at four or five in the morning with my suitcase and my, you know, pretty much everything I had wasn't in storage. And I'm thinking, you know, you're 53 years old, you're or 54 years old, you're 13 years sober, you've lost everything again. You know, and I went up and I walked up to Hancock Park and stayed at some friend's house and waited till they came out. I went and they let me in. I slept until noon. I called my sponsor and told him what had happened. And he said, well, Knox, you are, you are now, as the Buddhists say, unencumbered by attachment. And uh, so I made my way back up here, and that was in 2005. Um, you know, I, and I, I live in the most amazing place ever, and it's, I, I'm out of time. Um, but the last place I lived in was on a street with no law in East Oakland. And my building was protected by the Hells Angels. And they, there was a van, step van that sold heroin 24 hours a day across the street from my front door. I mean, I've just, where I've gone in sobriety has been, it's just been one place to another. And I've, but, I, you know, it's been incredible. I love that place. I mean, I love the whole outlaw aspect to it. It was great. I, I I'm now in this beautiful, wonderful place in the hills in Arinda. I didn't do it. God did for me what I could not do for myself. I mean, I, you know, I spent a year down in the Central Valley because, you know, because I lost my, I mean, just, I can't tell you all the stuff that's happened. Like, like Jeff, uh, uh, Ben said, you know, could talk for an hour easily about or more. Uh, Everything's happened. Uh, I could talk forever. And it's been incredible, but the core of my life and everything that matters has been from AA, our, our fellowship, 
connecting with you know all of you and wherever I've been, I have, and you know if it's if it's got to be Zoom, it's it's Zoom, it's it's fine. I mean, it's just it's, it's been the most incredible adventure. I'm so grateful, and I I mean, I I have a friend who had a friend. I, kind of had to quit time. She's, she used to get very judgmental on me and cause she's very much into money and stuff. And I'm a little, I'm an artist, I'll leave it at that. Anyway, and one day she was just getting on my case. I said, hey, wait a minute, Amy, let me explain one thing. Every morning when I wake up, I'm happy and I'm excited about the day and I'm glad to be alive. And man, that was never ever happening when I was drinking and using. And for and for that, for the being able to wake up like that, I, I thank all of you and Alcoholics Anonymous. So thank you very much.